Well, what a, what a good day. Rainy day, but good day. I'm so grateful for um, being able to be here today and be with you guys. So excited about the 21st of this month and Josh coming with his family to be the next lead pastor at Grace Point. And there's no need to be maudlin because I'm still going to be around. This is still my home and I'll still speak periodically whenever Josh asked me to. Um, so no big speeches today and um, no lame duck messages. I just thought I would just share something on my heart like I've been doing for the last 16 years. Next to being Nina and Stan Jr.'s uh, dad, it has been the greatest honor of my life to be one of the founders and to be able to lead this church. You guys are my people and you'll continue to be my people, and I'm grateful for that. So I suppose the kiddos are heading to class without me announcing that, but if there are any middle schoolers and high schoolers, you guys can go. Um, where to start, where to start? Reading a passage from the Sermon on the Mount. Do not judge, Jesus said, so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged. And the measure you give, it will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. When I was reading that earlier, I thought, have y'all ever heard that sermon from the preacher that just let the people have it in his last sermon before he resigned? <laughs> it's about the funniest thing I've heard in a long time. This Baptist preacher, Jeff, gets up and it's his swan song. He's going out and instead of blessing everybody, Drew, he pulls out every expletive in the book and tells sister so-and-so what he's thought about her for the last 13 years. <laughs> it's a real blessing. You should look it up sometime. <laughs> and when I read this text, because it sounded so harsh, I thought, man, that's, this is a little, little tough, but not calling anybody hypocrites. You guys are my people, and I love all of you. I was thinking the other day, uh, tomorrow I'm spending the day with Josh just to kind of you know, talk about the transition and everything and how I can help. And I was, I was thinking about when I, another time, came to a church to be on staff there, my predecessor actually met with me to just go down the list of the people that I needed to be cautious about. And my predecessor could not have done anything worse for me. It was such a projection of, of um, his own life, but... Um, and that wasn't in this town, by the way. I'm not talking about Dan Scott, who was my <laughs> predecessor at Christ Church. This was years ago. But I was, thinking, I was thinking about that, and I thought, you know, I'm meeting with Josh tomorrow, and I don't have one warning to give about anybody. I don't have one bad story or watch out for this one. And that was that's as honest as I can say it. It was just such a lovely thought. What a beautiful church we have, full of perfect people. 
I wrote this uh, in response to something that happened to me about a year ago. I think it was last March. I wrote, last evening, I overnighted with a group of 14 guys. All of these men live on the streets because they are currently without homes to stay in. This was over at Unity when we were there at the Unity campus and we were doing Room in the Inn. Some have been homeless for decades, some for only a few days or weeks. As we sat at dinner together, a couple of these men complained about things I would count trivial. One was upset that though we offered six different salad dressings, we didn't have Thousand Island. Another said he didn't find the food heated evenly. And this morning, so I I wrote this just on the heels of that experience. This morning, I got up at four o'clock to cook the guys breakfast before they went back to the shelter. And I immediately awoke to complaints of thermostat control, mattress firmness, and the absence of apple juice. Parenthetical, it's important to note here that for every complainer and complaint, there are at least four expressions of gratitude from others. And yet, in spite of this important parenthetical, I must admit that for whatever reason, last night and today, the complaints and the complainers really stood out to me. Maybe I didn't have enough, have gotten enough rest of late. Maybe I was hungry. I don't know. But it really got to me. As a matter of fact, the guy who complained about the overnight, overnight thermostat setting actually aggravated me enough that I, in one of my lesser moments for sure, fired back some pithy and sharp Jeremiah. I'm talking to a guy experiencing homelessness. But I came back with some pithy and sharp Jeremiah about thankfulness and entitlement. He shut up. I won. But man, oh man, I lost. Immediately, I wasn't proud. As I defensively and guiltily sulked away from the encounter, one of the older gentlemen we were hosting, a man who had been on the streets for many years, a man I knew, sat down beside me at the empty breakfast table and said something to me that was truly a divine word. I know this because it has not, since I first heard it, ceased hounding my soul and pressing my mind and weighing on my heart the way only sacred words can. Holy pest, these words are. He said to me, I'm sorry for what that guy said to you. I'm sorry about all the complaining. And I just wanted you to know, some of us know you don't have to be here. And I want you to know you're doing a good thing and this church is doing a good thing. But I just wanted to tell you about him. (sighs) He said, I want you to know about him. He's hurting real bad. You see, he's new to all of this and he feels like crap that he's here. In the last few months to a year, so much has been taken from him. He's gone through a divorce, hospitalization, and three weeks ago, from the streets, he had to endure the death of a teenage child, his child. 
I helped him scrabble together a suit to take an Uber to his daughter's funeral. So I just wanted you to know about this guy. And I just wanted to say, don't take away his ability to complain. Because he's not normally a complainer. It's just him today still trying to feel like a human being. Because of your position in society and the money in your pocket, you have the right to complain. I just wanted you to share that privilege with him today. I sat with those words for the better part of a day. And I'm grateful for the gift of repentance, which just means to change your mind. I'm grateful for the gift of changing my mind from arrogance, from selfishness, from indifference, from narcissism. I'm glad to be reminded that complaining is not the exclusive privilege of the haves. I was not the giver last night. One more time, I was the receiver. Don't judge, Jesus said. Now, of of course, and I don't have to go over all of this. You guys have heard a hundred messages about this if you've been around the church through the years. And just basic common sense tells you that Jesus wasn't referring to judging in the most neutral sense of the word. You know, just the, the basic neither negative nor positive sense of forming an opinion about something. Of course, we do that. We do this mild form of judging every day, all day long about many things, from the trivial to the critical. We have to make judgments. But you don't have to be a Jesus scholar or some kind of a spiritual sage to recognize, not just in the immediate context of this passage, but in the overall context of the life of this guy named Jesus, what he was saying here. He was saying to us, don't judge in a particular way. Don't judge unhealthily. Don't judge superficially. Don't judge wrongly. Don't judge, uh, more specifically, don't judge narrowly. Here's a good one. Don't judge hastily. Don't judge, he was saying, unfairly. Don't judge harshly. And while I'm pretty sure that there was more than one reason from Jesus' perspective to not judge, more than one reason that we shouldn't judge, he was saying, he immediately gives maybe what he thought was the biggest one. And I I don't know, arguably, it's the biggest to me. Listen to him. He said, don't judge And then immediately he assumed our question, why? Why shouldn't we judge? And he follows it with the admonition so that you won't be judged. That's interesting. Don't judge, he says. And instead of putting a period there, he says, let me explain my reasoning. Don't judge so that, in order that, for the reason. Here's why I'm telling you not to judge. And again, there may be other reasons, but this one was the one he appealed to. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. He immediately does something that the Christianity I grew up with never pointed out. He immediately appeals to self-interest. He immediately says, here's a good reason not to judge, because it'll come back on you. 
Love your neighbor, he taught us how, as you love yourself. I never got that part. I never, the, the whole self-love thing, I never got. Still, it's a wrestling match. How are we supposed to love our neighbors? He said, well, that's easy. The way you love yourself. That's assuming that you love yourself healthily. Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake, I mean, for the sake of what is called the Christ image, love of others, if you lose your sake, you'll find it. I mean, all the way back to the Garden of Eden, it's built into the Jewish tradition. Don't eat that fruit. Why? Because in the day you eat it, you'll die. Self-interest, immediately. Take care of yourself. Don't eat that fruit. I think, literally, I grew up believing that God told Adam and Eve, hey, don't eat the fruit of that tree. In the day you do, I'll kill you. God didn't say, eat the fruit and I'll kill you. That's bad religion. God said, eat the fruit and you'll die. That's, that's good psychology and it's good religion. Jesus appealed to self-interest just like that. And he said, don't judge so that you won't be judged. So Jesus is saying something that seems so easy and yet is so incredibly important. He's saying that my treatment of others directly correlates with how I myself will be treated. To make the point even clearer, he goes on and explains in more detail. He says, you, you see, you will be treated the way you treat others. And then he says, and the measuring stick that you use to judge others, ultimately that'll be the one used to judge you. Now, here's why I got way off track with texts like this a long time ago. I grew up with such a punitive, retributive, fear-based view of the sacred of God that what I heard this verse saying was, if you do bad and painful things to others, God is going to do bad and painful things to you. I heard this verse saying, don't judge others or God will judge you. It's not what this verse said. Verse, Jesus never brings God up. Jesus, I think, really understands that this doesn't have anything to do with the God concept. He just says, don't judge others so that you won't be judged because the measuring stick you use in life on others, it's going to get used on you. He doesn't say, don't judge others or God will judge you. He didn't say that at all. Go back to the original text. God's nowhere in the mix. But I, all of my life, heard this saying, what you do temporarily in this life to others, this was the kicker, what you do temporarily in this life to others, God is going to do to you eternally, infinitely, interminably in the next life. In other words, if you hurt people in this life, God's gonna hurt you in the next life. And somehow it will be fair for God to impose an infinite and never-ending amount of punishment on you for your finite limited crimes. What kind of sense does that make? That kind of religion either needs to evolve or die. I mean, that, that idea of God saying, you know what, if you don't forgive others, you know what I'm gonna do about that? I'm not gonna forgive you. And if you do something that hurts them in this life, I'm gonna hurt you forever. It kind of reminds me of, you know, <laughs> mom years ago, 
when we were kids in the back seat and we didn't have video players and phones to occupy us and we had to travel 700 miles together. Remember those days? You remember, if you don't, I'm gonna pull this car over. And you remember hand on, on the wheel, turning around and flailing. I think about my mom, who was a great educator. I, I, one of her lesser moments was I do remember her hollering. We were hitting one another, and she says, no hitting in this car. <laughs> Made all the sense in the world. That's about how much sense it makes to believe in a God who would say, you know what, if you're nasty to people, you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be nasty to you. Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Makes no sense. And yet, sadly, that's been the pretty standard and accepted way of looking at this text for a long time. Some Bible translators, really not translators, translations for those that care about this kind of stuff, translations are when somebody takes the original language of Greek and Hebrew and word for word copiously, carefully translates every word, which is not an exact science because languages, within themselves, languages morph over time. And when you cross languages, you know, all languages don't divide the pie of reality up. There are words in one language that don't have representations in another, and you have to use lots of words or phrases to, you know, to approximate them. But in the modern age, we not only have biblical translations where acute scholars try to go word for word, but we have a lot of paraphrases. I love the paraphrases. Paraphrases don't translate word for word. Paraphrases admit how much inexactness exists in translation, and they go concept for concept. But I'll tell you the danger of translations, or rather paraphrases when they're looking at an entire sentence or entire pericope, a section of scripture, and they have the latitude to go concept for concept, can you see how that might not be a really clean paraphrase of exactly what was said? That theology and presupposition of the translator paraphraser might enter into that? It happens a lot in paraphrases. My favorite paraphrase, eight out of 10 times, I pick it over all of the others. CEV, Contemporary English Version. And yet on this one, such a fail. Listen to the CEV translating this. Now these translators, paraphrasers, are looking right at the text, and theos, the word for God, is nowhere in the text. Jesus didn't say anything about God. And yet the CEV translator said, don't condemn others and God won't condemn you. Oops. And then, to make it clear, God will be as hard on you as you are on others. He, of course, always a he, he will treat you exactly as you treat them. And if you ever get nervous about us calling God she around here, we don't think God's a she or a he. Whatever God is, is so far beyond gender, so far beyond our theocentric ideas about, you know, a grandfather or a grandmother in the sky, all the language that we have from to try to convey the sacred is inaccurate. The reason that I prefer to talk about God as she is because I think calling God he has a lot more to do with how we look at gender than it does how we look at God. And I think, I think a long time ago when we decided God was this person who sits up on a throne and we were going to describe God, we said, well, 
you know, the top of the food chain around here are homo sapiens, and obviously the best homo sapiens, the strongest, are males, so we're going to give God the best pronoun. And that's why we gave God the he pronoun. So I think there's a, there should be a long time where we, you know, people are like, well, don't call God she if you're not going to call God he. Well, I think there's a bit of um, linguistic affirmative action that needs to happen for a long time till we correct this ship. So for me, God she. So there you have it. There's my explanation. If you don't agree with me, take it up with Josh. <laughs> the Good News Translation. Don't judge others so that God won't judge you. I say it all the time. The worst thing in this world is a fear-based view of God. There's no other etiology known to man worse than a fear-based view of God. Two, breaks my heart to say it, the largest purveyor of a fear-based view of God in this world is the Christian church. Three, the Christian church either needs to evolve and mature out of that or it needs to die. Three B, dying may not be the worst thing that ever happened to the church. It happened to its founder and things turned out all right. It's called the Paschal Cycle. Sometimes death is necessary. Four, the reason I'm working within Christianity and it's what I'm giving my life to now and why I can't run the day-to-day operation of a church because I'm all over the place because churches and people like you are springing up everywhere who are thinking better thoughts about themselves and life and this thing we've called God. And I believe the Christian church has the capacity to reform and the seeds of its own reform inside of it. And we can grow and we can get away from this kind of penal transactional idea of God. The good news translation is don't judge so that God will not judge you for God will judge you in the same way you judge others and he will apply to you the same rules you apply to others. Jeez. Jesus, well, let me bring this home. He just said the way you judge others is the way you're going to be judged. The way you treat others is the way you're going to be treated in this life. All he was saying, and I'm actually starting to believe this. Honest to goodness, I don't think I ever really trusted my faith because I never really believed it my whole life. Drew, or maybe it was Janice, said something about a year ago, quoting somebody, or maybe it was their quote. Um, I didn't lose my faith. I lost yours. And it took me losing the faith of other people to finally begin to find my own. And honest to God, at 51 years old, just the last year or two, I'm beginning to settle beyond a cerebral apprehension of ideas. I'm beginning to actually find some things about the universe and the laws that I think, I think this works. I think I can actually trust this and lean into it. That, that's faith, not believing something that authority figures tell you to believe and you think to yourself, that makes no sense, but they must be smarter than I am. That's a horrible idea of religion. Jesus just said something that I'm really beginning to believe. In this life, what you give is generally going to be what you get. Not immediately. And not always on the surface. But in the long run and way down deep inside of you, it generally is going to work out that what you put out into the universe is gonna come back like bread on the water. And, And the really talented people can push that 
out a long way through smoke and mirrors and manipulation. But it is so true what Jesus is saying here. The measuring stick that you exactingly apply to others, eventually, maybe not immediately. That's why Jesus said that the publicans and harlots, the bumblers and stumblers are gonna enter the kingdom ahead of the religious because generally the religious are those who learn a good enough song and dance, the talented folk to kind of push the reaping out there. Father Martin, one of the great 12-steppers, wrote a book called Blessed Are the Addicts, and he was talking about the blessing of addiction because it generally brings people to a base humility earlier than maybe things like religious sins and self-righteousness. I'm really beginning to see that there's there's a reason that every religion has a name for this thing. I mean, the one I grew up in, Christianity calls it sowing and reaping. Be not deceived, Galatians 6 said. Be not deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a person sows, the same shall they likewise reap. I heard that my whole life negatively. And yet that entire passage was written to a group of people who were doing their best to do good. And the next thing that Paul said was, so so hang in there. For you'll reap if you don't faint. And be not weary in well-doing. There's a weariness that comes with well-doing. Oh, sure, there's a weariness that comes with doing wrong, but there's a weariness that comes with ploddingly just doing the right thing and and not not seeing it come back to you the way that maybe you had hoped. And you're not trying to play, you know, the universe like a roulette wheel or, or, you know, holding God to some exacting way of performing in your life. But bottom line is you do good and, and you think somewhere... You know, your life ought to end up not quite so crappy. Paul said, I get that. So don't be weary in well-doing. In due season, you'll faint not. God's not mocked. Whatever, whatever, whatever a person sows, the same, the same, the same, the same. Plant corn, you're going to get corn. Some people call it sowing and reaping. Some call it karma. Some call it the law of attraction. Some call it your chickens coming home to roost. I just want to tell you, no religion or culture invented this. You know why I, 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 I really adhere to the teachings and am moved by the teachings of Jesus? I used to think things were true because Jesus said them. I now realize Jesus said them because they're true. That's what the great teachers among us do. They don't come along and invent stuff. They find ways of articulating what all of us are intuiting and knowing. I don't go to my doctor because I want her to have some new experience or tell me I've got a new experience. The most comforting thing my doctor can do for me is when I say this is my experience and she puts professional language to it. That's where the comfort is. I don't need her seeing things that I don't have or nobody's ever had. I love it when she just gives language and tells me what I'm feeling. That's what the great religious leaders do. They don't invent a bunch of stuff that then becomes true because they're authoritarian. They come along and say, you know, here's a way of looking at that. And they put a parable, they, they put language to it. And it, I know that I'm on the right track now as I travel around the country and I talk about what we kind of have come to here is, is this post-evangelical way of seeing God. I, I'm going around the country now and everywhere I go and I talk about what, kind of the things that we've kind of come to here, 
I don't hear, if, if I heard a bunch of people saying, wow, I've never thought of it that way, I'd think, well, we're off our rocker. That's not what happens. Everywhere I go, people walk up and say, you know, that's exactly what I'm thinking. I just didn't know how to say it. It's because truth is just always bubbling up and it's just being revealed. Jesus said, what you put out there, you're going to get. And, and one other thing, in the chapter before this, the same Sermon on the Mount, what I read was chapter 7. In chapter 6, Jesus said something that I am beginning to see through this lens totally differently. Jesus said, when you pray, pray this way. Say, Father, Mother, forgive me as I forgive those who have hurt me. Forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those that have trespassed against me. I thought that was a doctrine that meant if I don't forgive others, God's not going to forgive me. Terrible way of interpreting that. Jesus said, you want to know how to pray? Ask God to do this for you. Ask God, hey, forgive me as I forgive others. Ask God to do you a favor. God, do me this favor. Forgive me. And, and here's the way I would like for you to forgive me. Forgive me as I'm forgiving others. In other words, don't forgive me if I'm unwilling to forgive others. Maybe the worst thing you could do, God, is to let me be a forgiven, unforgiving person. Maybe the worst nightmare in my life would be the one who is so magnanimously forgiven and then I go and hold everybody else's feet to the fire. I mean, this prayer is a prayer of, God, don't let me be a jerk. Don't let me be the person who lives off of other people's mercy and then doesn't have any to give. Who wants to be that person? Who wants to be the person in the story who goes and the king says, I'm going to throw you in prison because you can't pay me back 30 million. And you fall down and say, oh, God, please, mister, forgive me. And the king says, you know what? Done, forgiven. And then you run out from there and a guy owes you $18 and you grab him by the throat and say, give me that money. Who wants to be that jerk? So Jesus wasn't saying, hey, I want to tell you how God works. However mean you are to people, God's going to be infinitely that mean to you. Isn't that lovely? Call that the good news. How about Jesus as a great spiritual teacher was just picking up on the way life worked and he said, when you pray, ask God, ask God to hold your feet to the fire a little bit if, if you would. Forgive me, but just do it as I'm willing to be forgiving of others. And then I think about Micah 6, three things that are required, walk humbly, do justice, and then love mercy. That's interesting. Be really careful to be fair with people. Be really careful to be humble. Don't overestimate yourself and underestimate others. Know that you're only one person passing through here. Lots of people are passing through too. When it comes to humility, he said, walk it. When it comes to justice, he said, do it. When it comes to mercy, he said, love it. In other words, if there's one of these virtues that needs to get beyond just base surface action, if there's one of these that really needs to get down into your heart and transform you, where you're not just walking it and doing it, but you're loving it, make it mercy. 
the willingness to look at people and grade them on a curve. The fact is, studies show in a million different ways that people we don't know very well or who are on the opposite side of the aisle from us ideologically, we overestimate all of their mistakes as coming from their character and personality and we underestimate their circumstances. But the closer someone gets to us, and really when it comes to us, we overestimate our circumstances and underestimate our personality. I remember George W. Bush after 9-11 said something that I I will never forget. How did he say it? See, I told you I would never forget it. (laughs) He said, we judge others by the worst thing they've ever done. And we judge ourselves by the best intention we've ever had. We judge others by the worst thing they've ever done and we judge ourselves by the best intention we've ever had. When it comes to mercy, Steve, that quote that Barbara gave to me years ago, post-Christchurch days, a widened heart sees others with hope and possibility as opposed to with a severe, loveless accuracy. Anybody ever been looked at with a severe, loveless accuracy? You drag her out, Scripture says, you got a stoner. We caught her in the very act. She's probably disrobed, severe, loveless accuracy. Here's a pile of stones, here's a woman, here's the text. Jesus just writes in the sand and says, he doesn't argue theology as much as he says, okay. Whichever one of you SOBs, that's not what he said. (laughs) Whichever one of you thinks that they are without sin, you go ahead and throw the first one. And you know what's really lovely? is the text says from the oldest to the youngest, they started dropping their rocks. Some of this just takes time. If you're an older person and you're not growing more merciful, but you're that cynical sage who's like, well, I've just seen too much, you're a fool. But life and your own failures should have a way of widening your heart to where it's not like a pair of glasses or contacts, but it becomes corneal. It literally becomes not a lens superficially that you try to see through, but you love it until it becomes the lens of your own eye and you can't see people any other way. So I'll close with this. My friend has spent his life in Nashville's inner city. A few years ago, gosh, this would be 10 years ago now, 15. He spent his life ministering in Nashville's inner city, and a few years ago, he took me with him. He called me. It was 1130. I'll never forget it. And he said, I need you to go with me. I've got to go check on a young mother and her kids. He told me he'd been caring for her since she was a baby, that his father and grandfather in the same work had cared for three generations above her. We got there about midnight. We knocked on her door. 
And there was no answer, so we let ourselves in. Gosh, two miles as a crow flies from here, government housing. She was asleep on the couch, and she couldn't be awakened after a long night, a long week, a long life of intoxication and drugs. Her two, almost three-year-old, was sitting nearby, caring for her lethargic 10-month-old sister. The almost three-year-old was sharing the stale, some pictures you'd never get out of your head. She was sharing the stale remnants of cereal out of a plastic bag. It looked like a generic big bag that you get without the box of Rice Krispies or something. The two-year-old was propped against the wall, sharing the last little bit of the cereal with the 10-month-old. As my friend made the sad but necessary calls to the police and DCS to get the kids to a better place, this scene was the final straw for him. I sat with the stinky 10-month-old in my lap. I propped against the wall and I glared at the woman snoring on the couch. With his calls complete, he sat down beside me on the floor pulled the two-year-old into his lap and stared at her with me, but through different eyes. Finally, he broke the silence and he said, do you know how old she is? I tried to be kind and I guessed early 30s. He was quiet for a bit and then Mandy, he whispered, 17. My God, I will never forget what he asked me next. It's one of those questions that opens up a part of your mind and heart so as you can never really be the same again unless you're a fool. He said to my harsh, merciless glaring, when do you think it was that you lost compassion for her? Was it between 16 and 17, 15 and 16? 14 and 15, 13 and 14. He painfully and methodically walked me down to her birth without skipping a year because as he told me later, she hadn't skipped one. She had lived every grueling minute of them. He continued, if you could figure out which year, he said as the two babies sat lethargically in our laps, hungry, cold, dirty and sleepless. If you could figure out which year, could you tell me which month? He then looked at the baby in my lap and said wistfully, it seems like only a few days ago, and he pointed to the girl on the couch that she was her. And then he looked long and lovingly toward the hungry, dirty baby in my lap, and he said, when are you gonna lose mercy for her? When will she cross the invisible threshold of accountability in your mind? Between one and two, two and three, five and six, nine and 10, will double digits do it? How about 12? Pubescence, it comes early in these parts. How many DCS interventions, how many foster homes and court appearances before you feel you have earned the right to look at her the way you look at her mother and presumably her grandmother and her great-grandmother? 
he almost grabbed me by the throat, and I'll never forget what he closed with. He said, there may be no excuse for this, but damn it, Stan, there are reasons. And until you know those reasons, don't look at her that way. And a chapter earlier, the wise man said, blessed are the merciful. You know why? For they will receive mercy. So when you pray, tell God, please don't let me turn into that person. Forgive me as I learn to be forgiven. And when you go off in this world to make your mark, be careful that everybody you meet, you meet with a widened heart and do yourself an infinite favor. Don't judge. And if you do have to judge, take a long, hard look at the measuring stick you use and the scales you use. And whatever the scales that I step on every day, I don't know why I step on them. They are eight pounds off. I step on them every day. I could bend down and adjust them. I just love stepping. I'm like, oh, I go to the gym, step on those scales. I'm like, y'all need to do something about these scales. I love stepping on scales that help me out a little bit. Love giving mercy. Grace Point, may this be a place where every tired, bedraggled, hurting person that needs to come home walks in and experiences a wideness of heart and a scale that fudges to the side of mercy. And may we put our measuring sticks away. Can you say amen? There you go. That's it. Thank you.